0: Today on CityCast Boise, Heath Drusen from the Extremely American podcast is here to give us a vibe check on the far right. We get into Ammon Bundy's most recent court troubles, news that the leader of a far right lobbying group doesn't actually live in Idaho, and why far right activists are more scared of civil litigation than criminal. (laughs) It's Thursday, February 1st, 2023. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is CityCast Boise. Hi, Heath. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Emma. Great to be back.
0: All right, let's get into this. Ammon Bundy is what we're going to talk about today uh, quite a bit. And he has had a lot of court troubles lately. So just remind us quickly, what is this one about, and why do you think it stands out from his other court cases?
1: Yeah, so I mean, Ammon Bundy has had a lot of criminal troubles, um, a ton of misdemeanors kind of adding up. And he's been in and out of court for that, or skipping court, as, as it may be. This is a little different because this is a lawsuit that he's facing. So um, Ammon Bundy and his People's Rights Network, um, they shut down St. Luke's downtown for quite a while one day uh, last spring, including emergency services. So it was a big deal. Uh, Ambulances were being diverted. Um, It was pretty scary stuff for some people. And this was all over um, the grandson of Ammon Bundy's right-hand man, whose name is Diego Rodriguez. Uh, His grandson was in the eyes of St. Luke's, malnourished. Uh, They were getting him care, and then there was some child protective issues going on. St. Luke's is now suing him and his group for what happened there. What he's facing now is, uh, unlike his misdemeanor cases, is a lawsuit that... um, opens him up to some some more scrutiny uh, because St. Luke's kind of wants to see the books on People's Rights Network. And they want to know a little bit more about Ammon Bundy's finances, uh, because this is a case that that may involve uh, monetary penalties.
0: Yeah. And in the criminal case, he pled guilty to this misdemeanor trespassing at St. Luke's. I was I'm curious, what was his game here? Like, why plead guilty and not go to trial on something he claims to believe in so strongly? I mean,
1: that's a good question. You know, I have talked to Ammon Bundy a number of times, and even though um, he did not get convicted on any of his most serious charges from way back when, when he had armed standoffs with the federal government, he did spend quite a bit of time in jail while those things were going on. And um, I do think it legitimately affected him. I don't think he likes being in jail. Uh, That sounds like a very simple answer. But I think that's a big part of it. I think Ammon realized that he was very likely to lose. And frankly, he got kind of a slap on the wrist for this. It was, Mm -hmm. I believe, a $1,000 fine. So I think it might be as simple as this was a good deal for him to move on. And the fact that he has this lawsuit going on that he has to focus on um, probably was a, a motivating
0: factor. Just before he pled guilty, he published this op-ed in the right-wing blog, uh, Idaho Dispatch. Can you give us the footnotes, just the footnotes on that? Because it was uh, pretty (laughs) long-winded. I'll spare you the thirty five hundred
1: word <laughs> read and break it down for the you. The novella, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it really was like a novella of grievances. But basically, what he said was he's being unfairly targeted by St. Luke's. The thing that I think jumped out at a lot of people is that for the second time in just a, just a couple weeks, he seemed to be threatening violence. He 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 was saying, you know, I am now at the point where I'm justified to use any means necessary. Now, that kind of leaves uh, a little to interpretation, obviously, but we know that Ammon Bundy has been a leader in two armed standoffs, one where one of his followers was killed in the end. Um, so he certainly has been willing to uh, to take up arms. In particular, he named Governor Brad Little and Lieutenant Governor Scott Bedke uh, at the end and is sort of uh, the people he has grievances with over this. What's interesting is... And, and and maybe a little alarming is that he seems to have completely given up on the court system and just having his day in court because he literally could have his day in court now and, and argue his case. But what he's done is he's chosen to skip all of his court dates. And what that kind of means to me is that if this goes against him, which it's not going to go well for him if he keeps skipping court dates, then he's decided that it's already unfair and he won't accept the judgment. He's certainly leaving open the possibility of some kind of conflict.
0: Something I've heard kind of flying around and uh, would love some clarification on. Did St. Luke's force Bundy to sell his house? Is that like a true thing? What, what's the deal with that?
1: So that's what he said in his letter. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it's definitely
1: more complicated than that. Bundy skipped out on a, uh, a deposition. Bundy was supposed to meet with the St. Luke's lawyers, and the court ruled that because of that, uh, he owed St. Luke's attorneys the money that they spent to get this all together. So essentially, it was a little over five grand. The court put a lien on Ammon Bundy's house for $5,000 plus some change. Now, Ammon Bundy in his letter said that made him sell his house, but Eileen doesn't actually force you to sell your house. So basically, before Ammon Bundy could sell his house, he had to pay the $5,000 to St. Luke's attorneys before the transaction could be completed.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what it actually looks like happened is that he transferred it to an LLC that he controls. He made it sound like he had to sell his house and move. That does not seem to be the case. He seems to be in his house with his family, man now the house is controlled by another entity that he controls anyway. So I don't know why he did that financially, but it certainly seems to be at odds with his letter.
0: Yeah. And I don't know, in some ways it kind of backs up this idea that you're talking about that like Bundy and other far right activists are really the most scared of civil litigation because those financial fines could break them, you know, like like could really do something. Uh, do you think that's true?
1: Yeah. I think it's absolutely true. A criminal case can have a chilling effect. There's no question if there's serious consequences for these folks. And we've seen some January 6 folks go to prison for a while. But I think civil litigation has actually had more power and uh, frightens these guys more because it really can um, it can lift the veil on on some of their inner workings. So I spoke to actually spoke to St. Luke's attorneys, and what they're saying is they're looking really closely at all of these LLCs that he runs. And it seems as though there's at least three that we know of spread across Wyoming and Idaho. What the attorneys want to figure out is like, okay, like what is, what are these funding? Is the people's rights network money coming into this and going to Bundy? And, you know, Bundy's always been very opaque about the funding of people's rights. He just says, oh, well, people donate money, but it's not registered as a nonprofit. There's been some connections with his gubernatorial campaign. So there's there's some questions about election finance laws. I think what worries folks like Bundy is that once you get into civil litigation, the other side legally gets to know a lot more about your operation. And we saw this in the aftermath of uh, the Charlottesville Unite the Right. This alt-right protest that brought a lot of a lot of Nazis and Nazi adjacent people to Charlottesville, Virginia. There was a former federal prosecutor who sued a lot of those folks, and and won in court. And basically, that forced these groups to basically stop them from doing another Unite the Right in Charlottesville. <laughs>
0: Shifting to what's going on at the state house this session, this was new to me. It Turns out militias are actually illegal in Idaho, which is kind of wild considering our, you know, well-earned reputation as a place where militias love to set up shop. I like to tell people, uh, don't start a militia; just join one. You know, There's, we have more than enough to to choose from up here.
1: Yeah, it's a crowded field in Idaho. I feel like uh, starting a militia now is like totally, totally missing the boat. Is it illegal in Idaho? The law certainly seems to say that certain things that militias do are illegal, parading in public with firearms. But yeah, uh, Idaho, like pretty much every state has laws that say you can't pretend to be a military unit. The National Guard is the state militia. And if you pretend to be that, then that is not legal. Now, I think just about everybody in our state knows that that is not enforced. Or if it is enforced, it's certainly interpreted to not being that militias are illegal. But yeah, there's uh, there's some legal experts that certainly think that that means militias are illegal. And now uh, there is a push, a new push, because there there was one last year that failed to repeal that part of state law. Now, what would that mean practically it's hard to say. So the senator uh, who's trying to repeal this law, Dan Foreman, uh, he's up by Moscow. And uh, he's saying that two sheriffs in his area welcome help from militia groups. And Yikes. <laughs> that raises some real questions, which I've asked him and I haven't gotten an answer yet. What does that mean? Does that mean private armed guys are going to be doing law enforcement stuff? I don't know if he means these sheriffs might be okay with that, theoretically, or that means they're working with them already. Um, I think it raises a lot of questions for Idahoans, conservative, liberal, otherwise. I'm sure there's a lot of Idahoans who might have some pause about, you know, just a random armed guy coming to your house and basically saying, "Hi, I I'm with law enforcement." Um, Kinda. I, <laughs> I want to search your home. I mean, yeah. I don't. Yeah. Well, you know where does that lead? So militias operate openly right now. However. If you repeal this law, does that give them sort of more of an official stamp of approval? Does that open it up to militias being more of a quasi-law enforcement wing? The recently departed Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, she wanted to deputize militias. So this is not something that's kind of coming out of the blue. The far right in Idaho has talked openly about these militias having some kind of official power.
0: Another thing, like he kind of pushed back uh, at the committee meeting, people were saying, well, this will aid extremists. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. This isn't, you know, skinheads or neo-Nazis. And I'm like, who do you think it is? (laughs) You know, who do you think is in these militias? You know, like.
1: That was an interesting quote. Mm -hmm. It kind of looks like he's saying. Well, it's not only going to be neo Nazis. <laughs> yeah, everybody gets to do this, and I don't know. Idaho is a very conservative state, but I still think a lot of people in Idaho would be like, "Well, hold on a second. We remember the '90s. Uh, mm-hmm. These guys did parade in public, being the uh, the Aryan Nations. Um, we didn't really like that. So I don't know that that was necessarily the best way to sell this. That like, don't worry, it won't just be the neo Nazis. Everybody can do this, but. The far right has made inroads in the Senate, especially, which used to be sort of a a a firewall. I don't know that that firewall's there anymore. And I do think that this uh, this law has has a chance.
0: I want to end on uh, this story from the inlander out of Spokane. Uh, which personally brought me quite a bit of joy. Uh, It turns out that the leader of a far-right lobbying group doesn't actually live in Idaho. And now, you know, I, I get it. In the era of, like, remote work, plenty of people live and work in different states. But given the Idaho Freedom Foundation's political influence at the state house, something about their president, Wayne Hoffman, not living here, caught a lot of people's attention.
1: Yeah. Let's give some real credit to Daniel Walters of The Inlander, who did amazing reporting on that. Yeah. There, was, there were two problems, the problem of optics of the leader of the Idaho Freedom Foundation not being in Idaho, but Daniel also caught Wayne in some kind of, let's call it a geographic sleight of hand, <laughs> where he was hosting his show from Washington, but saying, live from North Idaho hmm. Now, you know, there's there's plenty of people who are uh, talking about greater Idaho and, you know, expanding the state lines. But as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. And Spokane County is still in the uh, uh, as Wayne calls it, you know, enemy territory of Washington because it's a liberal state. So it wasn't a good look. Um, Wayne didn't have much of an answer. He said he bought it for his daughters and that he was kind of living an RV life and traveling all around. But the important thing that Daniel showed is that um, whatever Wayne thinks his home is, he didn't vote. Didn't vote in Idaho, which is a pretty <laughs> uh, pretty big deal for the head of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, uh, whose mission is to change politics in Idaho. It was kind of a funny story. Wayne's 51 years old and was sort of like almost pleading like, I'm an old man. I'm just RVing around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my golden years. Yeah, yeah it was.
1: Uh, it's, I think Wayne got a little bit caught out there and mm-hmm. uh, a little flat footed. And I don't know. He did respond to Daniel, which is unusual. Usually, he doesn't talk to any of us. But um, it was a, it was a really good story, and I think an important story because Wayne matters. You know, Wayne's a, a, an incredibly important lobbyist at the Capitol, and his ideas sometimes become policy. And if he's doing it from a different state, well, I think that raises some questions about the the propriety of everything.
0: Yeah. Well, and you said he didn't have much of a response, but uh, if you haven't read the article, I do encourage you to check out the last paragraph uh, in which he uses some (laughs) extremely colorful and inventive language that was pretty unexpected. Um, But do you think him not being in Idaho diminishes his standing? Like, are there possible changes in leadership happening because of that?
1: I do think it probably diminished his standing a little bit. Is it going to have lasting consequences? I don't know. Um, Wayne seems pretty secure there. Um, I think Brent Regan, who's the, um, who's the chair of the, of the foundation, is pretty tight with Wayne. I don't know that shuttling between Idaho and Washington is going to knock him out. I have a feeling I'd be a little surprised if the leadership didn't really know that. Um, if they didn't, then that might be a bigger problem. But I think they see him as effective. And until they see him as ineffective, it would take a lot to knock him out.
0: Well, and I feel like we should probably disclose here, you also aren't living in Idaho right now, although you're not (laughs) claiming to be live live from Idaho on your podcast. So what are you up to these days?
1: (laughs) That's true. I, at the moment, do not live in Idaho. And let me be clear, I am very open about being in Missoula, (laughs) Montana um, for the next four months. I am uh, I'm the visiting Polner professor at University of Montana School of Journalism. I am teaching students here about covering extremism and uh, audio journalism. So, um, you know, kind of the only thing I actually know about. I mean, I have very little expertise, but um, I get to teach <laughs> exactly what I do, uh, which is great. Idaho is uh, is still my home. I will be returning in May, but um, my temporary home is Missoula, uh, which is great, although it's negative nine this
0: morning. Oh my gosh. <laughs> which is, uh,
1: yeah, Boise seems like kind of tropical compared to Missoula right now.
0: Well, that's great. I hope you enjoy yourself up there. Stay warm. Thanks for stopping by and good luck with your students.
1: Thanks a lot, Emma. Great talking.
0: And one more thing before we sign off from the Idaho Press children's books have been the focus of far right legislators lately, but it turns out that they've published some controversial children's books themselves. Senator Brian Lenny, a first-year legislator from NAMPO, wrote, Why Everyone Needs an AR-15, a Guide for Kids, and Why Feminism is So Silly, a Guide for Kids, in 2018. In the book about AR-15s, Lenny wrote, It's Like a Lego Toy for Adults. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Leave us a review and subscribe to our Hey Boise newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with TikTok superstar Socialistly Awkward. Bye.